Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. I'm Steve. And I'm Kevin. Yes, today we're joined once again by Kevin Burke. He's an associate professor of music and the director of music programs at the Florida Institute of Technology. And you may remember him from episode 17, uh, which was on Konami's NES Music. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. I am excited to be back. It's uh, hard to believe that that was over two years ago. It seems like it was uh, last month or something. Exactly. Um, prob- <laughs> yeah, probably because I'm actually going right back to uh, NAC VGM this weekend, and I think I was just finishing up that conference the mm. last time we recorded uh, back in 2017. So what have you been up to since then? Uh, I know that you've been, I mean, we've, I've seen numerous posts. I know that you're working on a lot of different uh, synthesizers. <laughs> <laughs> which, in, in, which I've seen, but what have you been doing? What, what what's up? Well, yeah, I, I've uh, I've been doing a lot of things. Um, really, I've been interested recently in uh, collecting some uh, sources of a lot of the uh, samples that we find in in the eight and sixteen bit era. So just a lot of uh, units, uh, you know, Proteus units, uh, like the emu, emu units. Um, been getting some Akai samplers. Uh, I've been getting the Kurtz vial. Uh, sound modules and a lot of the Roland ones as well, and just sort of trying to build up a, a nice uh, rack where I can call f- different instruments in those collections. And uh, what my goal is is to be able to play some uh, game tracks uh, off of hardware of sound sources, so not playing them off the game console hardware, but playing you know a, a, all of the sources that all the different instruments from all the different units at the same time and just sort of hear what it sounds like. I'm just really curious. I've done it a little bit with some tracks so far, but I'm still working a little bit on getting my rig optimized. But uh, it's sort of something that I I hadn't imagined ever really doing before. I mean, because you can certainly put those samples into your software. You know, you've got like a sound font collection or so forth and, Mm -hmm. and play it back that way. But the idea of actually recording it off of those sources themselves and doing it dynamically is something that I'd really like to try. That's something I'm I'm interested in doing because I can only imagine um, you know, the the process of writing those tracks and finding those instrument sources and you know having a sequencer and clocking through MIDI all of those different units on a rack. It's just something that people don't really do now because everything is so much built into their software. And uh, I really would like to recreate that experience because there's something about connecting a lot of cables and having to repair a lot of gear that just feels, uh, (laughs) to me, it feels like I've really got my skin in the game a little more than uh, just using it all off software. So I can just imagine all those, those nights of staying up all night trying to get to troubleshoot all that stuff has to have been part of the creative process and I want to recreate that environment <laughs> even though I wouldn't really have to and most game composers probably would not want to go back to that type of environment again but I kind of like to experience a little bit and see what I can come up with so that's what I'm working on right now now that that is a super super cool project that's awesome yeah I, I can't wait to get it wrapped up and start sharing some stuff with everyone yeah we're looking forward to it uh so Steve what are we talking about today Well, it is the 30th episode of Retro Game Audio, so we wanted to do something a little special. Um, We've actually teased a couple times that... There's a couple episodes we've been teasing over and over and over again, but this is one of them. Uh, We're actually going to be focusing on Castlevania Bloodlines for the Sega Genesis. (laughs) 
We did an episode on the Sega Genesis, and also revisited it a fair amount in the Recording from Hardware episode, but this is our first time doing an entire episode about a particular Sega Genesis soundtrack, and we're more than happy to be breaking the ice with Castlevania Bloodlines. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of, uh, it's kind of one of, I guess, one of my favorite Genesis soundtracks. I think we've talked about it on the podcast many times, like I said before, um, as being one of our beloved and favorite soundtracks. Um, and it's just kind of like, it, it like, there's a lot of soundtracks for Genesis that kind of emphasize the rock bandness of uh, FM. And this kind of emphasizes a little bit of that, but also a lot of organs and instruments. And just, it's a really interesting soundtrack uh, by comparison in terms of sound design. So it definitely warrants its own episode episode yeah we've just been kind of waiting to do this episode because you and i both love it it's a it's great soundtrack um by the way if you haven't heard the recording from hardware episode yet uh i would definitely recommend looking up the segment on the sega genesis because kevin actually helped us out a lot behind the scenes for that episode with audio comparisons from different revisions of the console um so if you're wondering like you know what system do i listen to to get the best sound and everything like we cover all of that in that episode yeah, and even though we're not going to be able to do sort of a, a full comprehensive review of all those different sound setups, we will have a few different sound comparisons in today's episode, uh, just to kind of refresh everyone else's memory, and also to give just a few pointers. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> Mega Drive and Sega Genesis Audio is a never-ending rabbit hole, um, so... <laughs> Yes, and I am still digging away at that rabbit hole, and whenever I find that rabbit, I will let everybody know. (laughs) (laughs) So, to give a quick overview for the uninitiated, uh, Steve, what is Castlevania Bloodlines? Well, it is the only Castlevania game to grace the Sega Genesis. It came out in March of 1994, which is quite late uh, late in the system's lifespan, actually. 1992 is basically considered the heyday for most intentions of Sega Genesis. Uh, So, yeah, you know, came out kind of towards the end of its uh, illustrious career. You could choose between a set of two characters, uh, and the levels give you a sort of tour through Europe, which provide distinct settings and gameplay gimmicks. Introducing Castlevania Bloodlines for Sega Genesis, the most horrifying vampire hunt ever. Two new heroes, plus hordes of evil enemies and ghastly ghouls. It's intense adventure from Konami. That's the whole commercial. It's a short one. (laughs) Short and sweet. That that guy sounds like he was the exact same guy who did the Sega for the 90s commercial. I wonder if it is. He sounded angry. Very possibly. (laughs) He sounded very angry about it. Wow. Buy this game. (laughs) Anyway. Well, isn't that part of what, you know, Sega's yeah, whole yeah. marketing campaign in North America had all that edginess. You know, there was the Sega Scream and, uh, <laughs> you, you know, the, their, those commercials were not that, I mean, they, they were supposed to be aggressive. I mean, they, they really wanted yeah. to, to attract an older audience and have that, that 90s tood. So tell your folks, buy me, Bonestorm, or go to hell! <laughs> That's just so great. It's such a time capsule. Oh, man. Okay, so uh, back to uh, Bloodlines. Uh, it was also one of the last Castlevania games uh, to use the classic Vania level format before the Metroidvania format took over as its primary format for the 2D Castlevanias. So to put into context just how late this game actually came out uh, relative to other early Castlevania games, the Genesis was already out for roughly five and a half years in Japan by the time Bloodlines came out. This is two and a half years after the release of Super Castlevania 4 for the Super Nintendo, and Castlevania Chronicles for the Sharp 68K, and Castlevania Rondo of Blood for the PC Engine both precede Bloodlines as well. Konami was late to the Genesis in general, I mean, probably likely because of their licensing issues with Nintendo. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, the first things released for Genesis were uh, in 1992 were Sunset Riders and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Hyperstone Heist, which is actually really great. Uh, but they only released about 10 games total before Castlevania uh, Bloodlines. So the only 16-bit entry from the Castlevania series to come after Bloodlines was Dracula X, which came out a year later on the Super Nintendo. After that was Symphony of the Night for the PlayStation. Before we dive into the soundtrack itself, as well as its composer, we wanted to talk a little bit about the evolution of Konami's sound design. We've already talked at length about the progression of their NES music, but there's a bit of history that runs parallel here. Uh, experiences on other platforms that paved the way for Konami on the Sega Genesis. Yeah, so uh, Konami's uh, uh, 6809 based arcade boards included a Z80 for driving the PSGs, whether it was the AY or the SN. Uh, examples include Gyrus, which I think um, it was at five or six different AYs, um, and then Track and Field and Circus Charlie. Yeah, and so those arcade boards were um, 1983, 1984. Um, so then in 1985, um, we then start seeing Konami's GX400 and its bubble system arcade boards. And the um, bubble system used uh, for Gradius Twin B, um, Galactic Warriors. And these were driven by Motorola 68000 as the main CPUs. But they also had a separate uh, Z80 for controlling the uh, PSGs. So by this point, they're already familiar with PSG audio and the CPU that actually winds up in the Sega Genesis, but also experience with FM synthesis is on the way. Yeah, so when I was looking into this, my first thought was that the OPM would have been the first arcade use of FM that uh, Konami did, just because, you know, Marble Madness and uh, at the end of 1984, you know, Atari had that sort of jumpstart with it, and I just sort of figured that was, you know, going to be the sound chip that was going to be used in all the arcade titles, you know, when, when Konami and um, and Namco and everyone sort of jumps into using FM. Um, but it, it wasn't. Oh, okay, so do we know what the earliest example of FM audio from Konami is? Well, at least what I could determine, and certainly anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, um, Konami's first use of FM in arcade is uh, for Scooter Shooter in 1985, which is actually using the OPN, the YM2203, and that's the sound chip that was used in some models of the uh, PC-88. Um, but Konami did start using the OPM um, in some games in 1986, such as Salamander, and then that really became the mainstay FM chip on its arcade systems throughout the late 1980s and into the 1990s as well. The OPM was regularly paired with an external a DAC, and then Iron Horse even did go back and use the YM2203, the OPN, instead of the OPM. So why are we talking about all this? Well, in some, Konami was familiar with both of uh, the Genesis CPUs, the 68000 as well as the Z80, 
and of course using the SNPSG and pairing it up with an FM source such as the OPM and the OPN families of four operator FM chips. In addition to that, they also just, you know, in near history, finished uh, the Castlevania game for Sharp 68K, which also uses a Motorola 68000 CPU and also uses the OPM. So there's, again, this kind of building towards working with the Genesis. Yeah, so they arrived on the Sega Genesis with plenty of know-how. Um, but there's one last stop I'd like to make before we begin Castlevania Bloodlines, and that is uh, Contra Hardcore. So I actually came into this episode with a couple misconceptions, uh, which is why I'm bringing this up now. And it's probably just me being completely misinformed, but I had the impression that Contra Hardcore marked the debut of composer Michiru Yamane on the Sega Genesis, and that it paved the way for her work on Castlevania Bloodlines, but apparently that's incorrect. That's kind of what I was, I mean, based on my own just kind of preconceived notions about it, I, just, I always just assumed that... Uh, her lesser role in other tracks led directly to Bloodlines. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of true for other cases, but as it turns out, Contra Hardcore in particular came out like a half a year after Castlevania Bloodlines. <laughs> and um, even though she did some composing for it, she doesn't remember working on it uh, or any Contra game. And, uh, and she wasn't the main composer. So, you know, she maybe she only did a couple tracks and wasn't really that involved. Yeah, it's, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> Um, so, and you know, the, the point of this isn't to downplay her contribution to these other titles, but it's just correcting this sort of mistaken narrative I had in my head where like, I sort of wanted to frame this as a launching point. Um, but even with that idea sort of out of the window, I think there's two things worth sharing from it still. Uh, the first is a track called Simon 1994 RD. And, you know, I think you might be able to guess where this is going. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. That's fantastic. It's just the, the speed of it, too. <laughs> so the uh, the second thing I wanted to share was my attempt at finding some stylistic similarities to Castlevania music in Contra. Uh, as you just heard, the soundtrack overall has a sort of harsher rave or techno kind of sound. Uh, you know, it's really not Castlevania-like for the most part. And we don't know, again, specifically which tracks Yamane-san contributed. Uh, but there's a track called The Foggy Cave in the Darkness, which I'd like to share as Hardcore's closest thing to a Castlevania-sounding track.
yeah, I mean, I think the reason, Patrick, why you know you've deduced that this is you know if there was a track that sounds like yamane sons it's this one and it's for several reasons well first of all the title of it i mean the foggy cave in the darkness it really sounds kind of like a track from a castlevania game just by Mm -hmm. its title um but also one of the things we you alluded to earlier was that there's not a lot of 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 soundtracks you know for the sega genesis that feature instruments outside of sort of the rock idiom you know and Mm -hmm. and this one has a a lead kind of horn sound and a, a melody that you know, it's unlike the sort of techno rave sort of sounds um, and a lot of the sort of prog rock kind of thrashing, you know, rock band type of sounds. It, it has a little bit more of the same kind of melodic structure and also the timbre that you would find in the Castlevania uh, Bloodline soundtrack. So it really stands out among the other tracks. And that's why that connection just seems, you know, very likely. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of something from Symphony of the Night, just kind of that like that in the, the, the use of rhythmic uh, just kind of like the, the drums and kind of those lines or something that kind of that da 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 it's like something that Yamane has used in a lot of other tracks I think so it's it, like just thinking of like her entire library so it, it does it does kind of pass the, the the sniff test for me as well yeah I feel like you could just copy and paste that track directly into one of the DS Castlevania games and it would fit right mm-hmm. out exactly yep. exactly All right, so without further ado, let's take a listen to Castlevania Bloodlines, starting with the Konami logo, a vision of dark secrets, and the beating in darkness. Yeah, that's a great prologue theme. I've always, I always remember that, like you know, just kind of like I I own the game, but I used to rent it a lot when I was younger, and I always remember that being like one of my favorite points because I was never very good at the game, so I, I got to hear the prologue theme a lot. <laughs> oh, it's it's a hard hard game, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that track also features some of the the great quality sounds that you can get off of FM chips. I mean, the the sort of the chiming bells. I mean, you know, the, that's an instrument that always sounds great with FM, and and if you set it up in the right way and you pair it with other kinds of instruments it's really a nice effect and it's you know not always used that much because it's kind of unusual if you're kind of going for a rock element to do it but it works great in bloodlines and you get that right off the bat and there's a lot of tracks that make the you make really great use of the bell sounds so one of the first things we should bring up i think is what we're actually listening to here um i think the intention was to share something special with our listeners which is a recording of the entire soundtrack from Hardware, uh, attempting to get the best sound possible, and it was all graciously supplied by Kevin. 
There are some pros and cons to discuss with the recording set of heard in this episode, but to start with, Kevin, what exactly are we listening to? Yeah, I think, uh, Patrick, you're absolutely right when you say attempting to get the best sound possible, but I think towards the end of 2018, I you know was kind of following along stuff on Twitter and on Discord and heard about um, the Firebrand X had a mod coming out that he was releasing called the um, M1 Mini. And uh, he was wanted to do something a little bit different than the the sort of uh, mega amp, which is sort of the I guess the the successor of the Crystal Clear audio mod. And um, one of the things that he's trying to capture, he, first of all, he's using this for the Model One Genesis, and really the the mega amp is really kind of more of a mod for the Model Two Genesis, although though it can be done on on the Model Ones. Um, you know, it's for people who have stinkers, Mm -hmm. you know, you put a mega amp in and then boom, everything is much better. But this is really, you know, trying to capitalize on the model one and the use of, of course, the, the YM261112 revision. And, um, one of the things that is true with the earliest, um, revisions of the model one is that there's a slight difference in the low pass filters. The very first revisions had it set a little bit higher um, at it, uh, I think it's 3.39 kilohertz is the um, is the ceiling for that low pass filter, and then around the um, MD1 VA3, then that that low pass filter ceiling was brought down to um, I think it's uh, 2.84 kilohertz, and so by kind of removing that low pass filter, you're then able to capture those higher frequencies. And these are, again, are frequencies that are sort of above the tones, but they add a certain quality to the timbre of the instruments that you're listening to. It adds a sort of a, an extra brightness and brilliance to the sound. And uh, when, you, when you're hearing these and comparing them with some of the other revisions, I think you'll see that there are some instruments in particular, some of the, the, the different timbres that really shine with this mod because there are elements of their, of their timbre that really, in essence, come from those higher frequencies. And when you've set that low-pass filter so low, you're really kind of denying that extra shine on the on the instrument sounds and that's why you often get that kind of muffled muted sound with some of the revisions of the uh of the sega genesis is because of that type of filtering so i just had a kind of a follow-up because just thinking about that in general like so that means that the fundamentally the ym2612 does not have like and obviously it's just a chip itself it doesn't have any low pass filter was that kind of or any filter in general, is that was that kind of a, a trend with FM chips? Like, is that something that was very common built into hardware for other systems? Or is it just really the Sega Genesis that has this weird issue? Because I find it kind of interesting that you would automatically put a limiter on a chip that's been designed. You know what I mean? Like, why right. wouldn't it just have that in, in the first place? Um, so I, I'm very curious about that. Well, I, I certainly don't know exactly the answer to this. And if anyone does, I, I hope that they chime in. But what I would speculate is, you know, if we're talking about an arcade cabinet, you know, you're, you're designing a lot of that around a certain game or a certain sound engine that the company has control over. Mm-hmm. And so setting some of those filters, I mean, you're using discrete sound chips in a lot of these cases. So you're having mm-hmm. to build in the whole audio circuit and add some of these filters into it, but you sort of have control over everything. But once you have a home console and you have all these different parties developing games for it, you don't really have that kind of control and you have all this sort of inconsistency 
you know, you know some of them are, are going to use the sound chips a little bit differently as well. So it's it's not something that's really built into those um, FM chips, at least in their discrete state. Now, some of the the ones that have are more integrated with other applications, then they may have those filters built in as well. Um, but certainly, for using the the YM two six one twelve as a discrete chip, then yeah, you would have to build the whole audio circuit around that, which would include you know the amplifiers, the op amps, as well as those filters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, another non FM example, actually, the Super Nintendo has a built in filter that can't be disabled. Um, but there's that one player you can use to like play SPC files and re- and remove it. Uh, right. But on hardware, on hardware, it can't be removed, and that also sort of adds an overall muffling to the sound. Uh, yep. Again, for I think the exact same reasons that Kevin just brought up. So it's really just an issue of consistency across these things, just kind of like, as you said, like a limiter. I mean, in an arcade and being able to control all your hardware, of course, you you know, I, I suspect you'd probably want no limiter. You want to use a tracked mode to get and be as noisy as possible, especially if we're talking like mid 80s. Um, but I guess in a home console with varying uh, TVs, with varying outputs, with varying everything, uh, it would, I guess it would make a lot of sense, as you said, Kevin, to have some kind of normalcy across them. That's very interesting. I never even thought about it that way. So getting back into the soundtrack here, uh, what do we have coming up next? Uh, we're going to play Bonds of Brave Men and Arduous Journey. Uh, these are the character select and map themes. Man, it's it's so good. The, the drum the drum design is top notch in all of this. I steal those all the time when I don't want to write with uh, any kind of samples or something. I've tweaked them to be a little bit stronger, but man, they're so good. Oh, you have to because there's not a whole lot of examples of great drum of FM drums on no. Justice. I mean, th- there are a few that do it really well, but you know, most of the most of them are, are still sampling a lot of drums, and there's a lot of really bad drums out there too. Oh, the, oh yeah, there's some horrible drums, like horrible. <laughs> So one of the downsides uh, to the chosen recording method is that I, at least that I've noticed, is it does produce some hiss. So it, it's kind of like this unfortunate trade-off that you that you have to deal with, um, and it's not always as present. Um, I think it really depends a lot on the type of FM instruments that you're using, um, and this is all based on you know harmonics because the color, the timbre of an instrument has to do with how strong all of those all those uh, harmonics are, you know, with the, the strength of the presence of, of, of those overtones. And some of them, their overtones are just much more present. Um, but a lot of the instruments that we find in this particular soundtrack in particular, because we're dealing with ones that are sound more like strings and brass instruments, organ sounds in particular, reed sounds, a lot of those have a lot of overtones. And um, so when you, when you get those particular patches coming through, that hiss kind of is a little more noticeable. But um, even with this like sort of downside in consideration, you know, I I'd, I'd like to make the case for why this mod really is preferable. Um, you talked about the extra brilliance before that comes mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. Um, and I just want to play an example here. You're gonna listen to the first eight measures of "Calling from Heaven," but every two measures, it instantly swaps between unmodded and modded. So you're gonna hear it start with like a muted sound and go to a crisp and clear, and it'll it'll do that a couple times. Let's give it a listen.
Though to be fair, this doesn't show hissing at its worst, uh, so I'll bring it up again and elaborate on some more detail when we get to theme assignments, since the issue will be a lot more obvious there. Moving on, let's take a listen to Reincarnated Souls Parts 1 and 2, the Stage 1 themes, followed by the first mini-boss theme, Messenger from Devil. love that squealing the vibrato the yeah it's so great it's so great and so one thing we wanted to do for this episode was to take a look at the instrumentation used throughout the soundtrack and see what we could learn for starters it uses 86 different patches which is pretty cool that seems like quite a lot yeah i think it's more than i would have expected but at the same time i don't really have a good frame of reference you know since we've never really dug through genesis soundtracks in this way before yeah, I've ripped plenty of instruments from Bloodlines to use for my own music, um, but this is the first sort of comprehensive look we've done like this in, in this particular fashion. Yeah, like I can remember for our um, Famicom Disk System episode, finding that Konami tended to use more wavetable instruments than other companies. Uh, so that seems likely to be the case here as well. But we'd have to look at more soundtracks to know for sure, you know. But I think, like, moving forward, anytime we do an episode on a Sega Genesis soundtrack, we're going to dump all the instruments again. Yeah, and, um, you know, I have spent a little bit of time looking at other Sega Genesis soundtracks and looking at all the different patches for it. And, um, you know, one of the ones, you know, Wolf Team, for example, they reuse a lot of the same patches. And really, I, I actually, on 
the Deathly Mass forms, it, I posted sort of like a Wolf Team template, you know, for anyone who wanted mm-hmm. to just write, you know, something that sounded like their their Sega Genesis um, games. And it, it, there's not a whole lot of instruments. I mean, most of the games only maybe have about 20 or so. Um, and then, you know, about a, you know, a, about a half dozen of just drum samples, um, especially the, the, the clapping sound for which they're known, but it's, you know, it's a fairly small sample. Now there are a couple games like Arcus Odyssey and stuff that have a lot more added onto mm-hmm. it, but nothing near 86. Um, so for me, you know, there, there is a lot more reusing that I, at least that I've seen with some of the other ones. I also looked at, you know, a lot of the, uh, uh, Hitachi Sakamoto, uh, Sakamoto and Wada's, you know, the, the Terpsichorean sound driver, you know, things like Devilish and, um, mm-hmm. and Veritex mm-hmm. and so forth. And there's a lot of similarities in there. There's as well. I mean, they have a little bit more. Um, and sometimes they just tweak a little bit, you know, of the, of, of the parameters. So there's a lot of them that are very similar, but there still seems to be a little more consistency. Um, and not again, not as many as like 86. So I do think this is a little bit more, uh, on the high end. Yamane Sun even talks in her interviews about how she kind of crafted all these instruments and stuff when she was doing the game. And so she probably was tweaking a lot of them for each individual track. And that's why we ended up with so many. Yeah, it's funny, though, because like I, I definitely even when I've been writing soundtrack work, uh, working on like Rock Rocket, I don't know their FM projects. I, I generally have a 12 a patch go to. Uh, that I use, but a lot of times I will just take one of the patches and say, for this situation, I think the bass should be a little bit stronger. I'm going to work on operator four. I'm going to drop it down an octave, blah, 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 blah. And so that's kind of like I'm creating new patches. So I wonder how much of it is, like, as you said, just kind of like tweaking uh, per track and just really thinking about where it sits in the mix, uh, you know, which is kind of like an advanced technique compared to, you know, just here's your six patches, go ahead. I think like I, I was looking at, um, Comic Zone. I believe Comic Zone has like eight patches. It's like a very small amount. Well, so that's really what I was kind of curious about is, you know, is Konami reusing a lot of these instruments from their previous Genesis games? Um, You know, so I, you know, one of the games I I took a little time to look into was Lethal Enforcers. And I did manage to find about 10 instruments that were the same uh, in Lethal Enforcers and in Bloodlines. But that's 10 of 86. And those 10 are including things like the Konami logo jingle and some of the drums. So again, I, I think that that is probably just shows how much Yamanison is is really crafting this on her own. This is not just sort of a stock, you know, collection of instruments in the Konami driver that she just kind of like a MIDI type of deal, you know, where you'd mm-hmm. say, okay, flute here, you know, horn here, organ here, and it's just kind of reusing these same ones it's not like you know kind of like a gems collection which is probably what comic zone you know was using mm-hmm. um you know guitar here and i mean a lot of that game is kind of has that that rock sound so why would it change a lot of instruments if that was sort of the process oh no that's pretty cool though that you found like 10 instruments in common across the two soundtracks though that gives us somewhat of a frame of reference for like how much is being recycled and how much is being iterated on or how much is completely new one point uh that we should bring up here too as well though is the sega genesis of course is capable of psg audio uh you know like the backwards compatibility to the sega master system that sort of 8-bit sound and that's actually not used anywhere uh in the bloodline soundtrack so you just have like the modern fm sound in the soundtrack 
Well, moving on, uh, we'll listen to the next several tracks as if we're encountering and defeating the level one boss. This includes a familiar introduction to the boss area using a tune called Nothing to Lose, is then followed by the main boss theme, The Six Servants of the Devil. And these are followed by a couple of jingles, which are Orb and Stage Clear. the sort of antecedent like the question like do 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 like there's a question yeah and then there's your answer yeah i just like, <laughs> I just like love that's the rhetoric like some, of the music <laughs> it's great because like you know you can use and they, it's rarely done where you can just kind of use every channel to just blast out the chord like that on fm mm. um and it's great to hear like not one like it's all six channels i believe in that situation um so it's great to hear all of it i think <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Nothing to Lose, of course, sounded familiar to fans of Castlevania 1. It's the Phase 1 Dracula music, which first appears when you approach his tower. And in Bloodlines, the first boss fight takes place in the ruins of Dracula's tower. So, they reuse the same song for the same location of the castle, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so... um. I want to say something about Six Servants of the Devil. I, you know, th- there's that that bell at the very, that sort of chime that at the very beginning. I want to take a closer look at it because there's, it's a sort of a, a dis, um, I guess a dissonant kind of triad. It sounds to me a very similar to like an augmented triad, but it, it kind of dies out quickly, so it's very difficult to pinpoint. It's interesting because this is a this is a, a single patch that comes through in a single channel. Um, so it's using the algorithm number four. Um, so we I think you all talked about this in the, the Sega Genesis episode that you know the four operators in FM chip can be aligned um, to how they manipulate each other, and those algorithms you know will affect the different kinds of sounds. Well, al- algorithm four is very interesting because it's got you know sort of like two pairs. I like to think of algorithm four as being like uh, like two two operator FM channels that are kind of mm-hmm. working together and outputting sound. 
And um, this, this particular algorithm can be set up to create some harmonies. And that's because one of the f features of the FM chip is a multiplier. Um, so what it does, you know, it kind of is the frequency is multiplied at a certain rate, and it can help to bring out some of those overtone harmonics, which sometimes create intervals and harmonies that are very familiar. Um, the most common use of this is to create perfect fifths, um, which mm -hmm. is a ratio of three to two when it comes to the frequency range slope. So like if you were to take a string, like if you were plucking on a, on a string and you were to point down, you know, like two thirds of the way, then the relationship, you know, between the two parts is going to sound a perfect fifth. Um, so if the multipliers are set, sometimes they're set to like six and four among the operators, then you can get it to sound in this algorithm to sound perfect fifths. And so you're able to get harmony just in one channel. And so in this particular one, um, I, th I believe the, the multipliers are set to 15, uh, three and seven. And so you end up getting this, it's, you know, kind of a dissonant chord, sort of like an augmented triad, um, but it's just one monophonic patch. I had no clue that that's how that was done. Like I, I yeah, definitely heard awesome. those weird instruments where you had that fifth in there and I'm like, how... There's something that's being manipulated here to get that fifth. I'm just going to use it, but <laughs> what the hell is it? <laughs> well, you but, know, uh, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it happens very commonly, and this can actually be done in other algorithms at the doing octaves. You know, which is a ratio of yeah. two to one. And so there are a lot yeah. of sounds that just have the both the higher and the lower octave tone that mm -hmm. comes just the way the operators are set up. Um, yeah. And you can easily do the, the the multiplier and create that as well just by using you know ratios of two to one. So, moving forward past stage one, we encounter Mysterious Curse, the password theme, followed by stage two, Sinking Old Sanctuary. Yeah, Sinking Old Sanctuary makes really uh, profound use of, of echo. You, you, you can really hear the, the two-channel echo effect, and it's panned also to the side. 
Um, so if you have, you know, if you're listening to your headphones, you can really hear you know, that little that little melody. Da, 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 da. You can hear the echo very cleanly, and actually the the uh, Firebrand X mod, I think, really helps it stand out a little bit more too. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It it sounds really great with that mod, especially. I mean, the use of that feature of uh, just getting that like just the little bit more overtones, you can definitely hear it. So to talk a little bit more about the instrumentation and the soundtrack, we tried to categorize all the instruments. Um, so a decent chunk are open to interpretation, but I think we kind of came up with a, a like a consensus here. Um, so 14 of these would be bass patches. Four are bowed strings. 15 are brass. Eight are electronic or synthy sounds. Four guitars. Nine mallets. That includes things like chimes and xylophones. We had to kind of blend that all together. Seven organs. Ten percussion. Six varieties of plucked strings. And ten woodwinds. And if you start to listen to enough of these, like trying to figure out what they are, they'll start to go a little crazy. Um, I mean, like it's FM synthesis. So at the end of the day, it all just kind of sounds like synthesizers. But uh, nonetheless, you have a good chunk of instruments where it's pretty obvious what they were intended to be. And then for the rest, you know, it's kind of a gray area. You get the overall picture, but maybe not an exact instrument pinned down. Yeah, it also really depends on the range of the instruments are used because, you know, one instrument can have a dramatically different sound when played across several octaves. And sometimes they can have a very specific window they're intended for, Um, you know, because these are all sine waves, essentially, and that the operators are creating. And, you know, depending on what your frequency is, you know, where those envelopes are going to impact things, you know, as you move up higher and lower frequencies, then the effects of the of the FM synthesis, you know, are, are not going to always be consistently as profound. So in some octaves, it just sort of sounds like the same kind of sine wave FM bass sound or bell sound or, and then you get to a certain sweet spot where those envelopes just kind of hit at the right rate of the frequency. And then something very drastically different happens. And then that might be the sound that they're trying to capture. So just as an example, I, I've recorded um, this sort of fat resonant low sound on uh, this really low brass that you can hear um, in all clear music. Um, and I did it at a, at a few octaves higher first, and then I played it again at its intended range. And when I recorded this with the FBX mod, I had in my mind that I wanted to get the peak on the sound just underneath where it would clip because I really wanted Steve to experience the fat low bass sound because I know how much he loves his VRC6 sawtooth and this being of course a Castlevania game I think I did like 15 attempts 
to get that right at that negative, you know, <laughs> 0.01 decibels. I, I wanted to get it as, as high as I could without losing anything. So hopefully this comes across over the podcast, but that nice fat, low resonant sound and all clear, you'll hear it after you hear it in the higher octave. Again, it's the same patch. So, continuing on, next up is the Stage 3 theme, The Discolored Wall. So overall, if I had to pick like a least favorite level theme, I think it would be that one, um, just because it's very dissonant. Not that it's not a well-written track, because it, it is. Um, and I think it, you know it actually works very well within the context of the level, because the, le- the level is completely insane. <laughs> yeah, it's um, so wacky. <laughs> it's so wacky. So you, cl- you climb the Leaning Tower of Pizza, uh, and you eventually ascend some floating platforms outside of it. So it's kind of like an excuse to have the tower like as a set piece from multiple mm-hmm. pr- perspectives and like it sways back and forth and you fight a boss on top of it and like it spins around and like it's just so utterly ridiculous and you know i think it's might be the most brazen display of how the game hops around europe and i think it's just one of the most absurd castlevania levels um it's like where in the world where in europe is carmen san diego let's hit a bunch of uh these iconic spots and just throw it into Mm -hmm. the game it doesn't have to make sense but let's just put them in there anyway (laughs) <laughs> it, it works well, though, for how, like, a lot of the stages have a distinct gimmick, though. So the, the game does a great job of making the different levels stand out. Um, but anyways, getting back to the music and sound design, Kevin, I think you had another instrument picked out here? Yeah, you might have noticed, um, you know, right after the, the very beginning of the track, there's this kind of uh, very slow attack instrument that just kind of comes out of nowhere and has this very kind of rumbly, throaty sound. Um, it's, you know, starts very smooth and then just kind of completely comes undone. And um, so... We'll take a listen um, of this instrument patch, but one of the things that I can share that when you look at the envelopes of this um, is that it's like a perfect X. You've got operators that very smoothly are just decaying from the highest attack down like a perfect diagonal slope down, and then the other operators are sloped up. And so they kind of cross each other like a perfect X. And that's where you sort of, that sound starts very kind of pristine and it just kind of completely comes ripped apart. And you get that really kind of rough, dirty, throaty sound. 
So the next stage, stage four, takes place in a munitions factory in Germany, and it features a beloved theme called Iron Blue Intention, which is probably the most well-known track from Bloodlines. Yeah, that track is fantastic. Uh, I'd say that's one of my top two tracks from the game. No, there's there's a lot to love about that track. So now might be a good time to talk a little bit more about um, Michiro Yamane, the composer of Castlevania Bloodlines. We've already kind of thrown out a few bits of pieces about her. Um, so she doesn't really need much of an introduction, and she's certainly well known for composing Castlevania Symphony of the Night and really becoming the main composer for the Castlevania series afterwards. Um, but her first entry into the series begins here with Bloodlines. So here's a super quick history and profile of Yamane-san. She applied to Konami while she was in her fourth year of college, where she studied classical music. The first Konami soundtrack she contributed music for was Rizu no Yusuke Densetsu for Famicom Disk System. So she went on to compose for various soundtracks like uh, Gambare Goemon 2, which is fantastic use of the uh, sort of um, traditional Japanese instruments, and then the Nemesis series, and then even Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Fall of the Foot Clan for the original Game Boy. So her debut on the Sega Genesis, which is not Contra Hardcore like I had previously thought, uh, it starts with Rocket Knight Adventures. But for that game and most others, she collaborated with other musicians and contributed an unknown number of tracks. And actually for Rocket Knight Adventures 2, she worked with Akira Yamaoka, the famed composer for the Silent Hill series. Oh wow, that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's like a weird uh, meeting of people who want to do much more famous stuff later on. Yeah. Um, But it's with Bloodlines that she was given her own entire soundtrack for the Sega Genesis. In an interview with Chris Greening, she had this to say, First of all, I think there was some affinity between the image of a vampire-infested world with the traditional classical music that I had been taught from a young age. Back then, I thought very carefully and tried integrating such things as the classical music element that had already been a part of me with the rock elements previously featured in the series. In addition, dynamic bass lines and groovy rhythms were fundamental to the game's music. So moving on, let's listen to the stage 5 music, which is set in Versailles. It's called Prayer of a Tragic Queen.
Wow, that track is fantastic. I, I just absolutely love that one. And it's really a, a, a perfect one to bring in here after that quote, because this is really the most traditional Baroque-style composition that's found in Bloodlines. I mean, it has the sort of two-part invention contrapuntal style that we would have in the Baroque period, uh, which is probably inspired by the, the level setting at Versailles, and even some of the Baroque performance techniques, such as the mordants and the, and the turns on the melodic phrases that you would find in the music of that time period as well. Mm-hmm. And though the style is very appropriate for Castlevania, Castlevania soundtracks tend to lean much more in the direction of like neoclassical rock or a sort of gothic funk pop or whatever you call it. Um, the tracks that are more straightforward, baroque, and classical are in the minority. But I love it when a Castlevania game has like a really, really strong one. Um, Castlevania Three has Clockwork, Symphony of the Night has Wood Carving Partita, and Bloodlines has this track, Prayer of a Tragic Queen, and it's like almost its own subgenre within Castlevania soundtracks, and I think they're always they're they're always standout tracks. They're fantastic. So Yamane san has cited composers like Maurice Ravel and Claude Debussy as some of her favorites, along with French Impressionist period in general. But kind of like what we were just hearing here, she's also expressed love for Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, etc. etc. And actually her college thesis was on Bach, which would explain Woodcarving Partita and Fire of the Tragic Queen perfectly, actually. Uh, so moving on, we're at the final stage, which takes place in England, and the track is titled Calling from Heaven.
This is my other favorite track alongside Iron Blue Intention. It's so, so good. Uh, just one of my favorite Castlevania tracks in general. I think it really beautifully marries that sort of Baroque and classical style with the sort of rock elements because you've got a great melodic line and you've got some of the great that 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 sort of syncopated drum beat which is which is perfect but it, you've also got the the sort of harp like arpeggio that also pans you know between left and right that's going over all of this as well so you really have kind of both of those styles you know, that we associate with Castlevania kind of running in perfect balance in this example at least in my opinion that's aesthetically that's mm-hmm. something that I really admire it, it nails it so to talk a little bit more about the game itself and putting it into context of the Castlevania storyline, Bloodlines was originally intended as sort of a side story to the series. And neither protagonist bears the name Belmont, which, you know, and most of the game takes place outside the castle, you know, so we're kind of breaking a bunch of rules here. And when series uh, producer Igarashi, or Iga, uh, took over the reins of the series and established his own canon, he called a bunch of titles, uh, most notably a lot of the Game Boy titles, I think. Uh, yeah, and, and, and 64 games, of course, yeah. Uh, sad. But uh, <laughs> that's another another episode. Uh, right. But surprisingly, Bloodlines was actually kept, uh, and its storyline was heavily referenced in Portrait of Rune, which is really a great game. Mm-hmm. And it should be noted that Blood- I'm glad you feel that way because uh, I remember some people were a little weird on Portrait of Ruin for some reason. But yeah, that game some was people awesome. have like really big feels about Portrait of Ruin, and like I, I really enjoyed it. I don't know. You know what I think it is? It's I had already accepted that the aesthetic of Castlevania had gotten a little too cheesy anime, mm-hmm. and I was okay with it at that point. Yeah, I'd already like, accepted the series' fate at that point. So, like, if you're gonna accept like Soma, like, come on, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just think it's really strange that people like that's the one game that people didn't like out of that whole run of them they were all kind of like going in that direction you know so but again, yeah I, I think i always wanted more of like a dark souls aesthetic out of castlevania like i would have preferred it to mature in that direction but if it's going to be cheesy anime like it can go all the way that, that's where i mean the <laughs> ps2 titles kind of give you that uh you know that kind of gives you that kind of real horror element to it you know and then going into like curse of darkness and some of the other ones that come afterwards um, you know, it, it gets a little, it, it continues that kind of dark aesthetic, but the Game Boy games always seemed like, I don't know, or even that Game Boy, the DS games always seemed a little bit more goofy in that way, but like in a great, in a good way, I don't know. I, in Portrait of Ruin was probably the goofiest of those titles, but I, I still don't get why it gets so much hate. I don't get it. Anyway, sort of getting back into the discussion about Bloodlines here, uh, it should be noted that Bloodlines has never been ported, nor had a virtual console release of any kind. So there's never been any way to legally buy it and play it on modern systems. So for whatever reason, despite being cemented as a canonical entry of the series, it's been ignored this whole time. And there's a great article by Jeremy Parrish where he calls it the most unfairly forgotten Castlevania game ever made. Uh, It's a good read, and we'll link to it in the comments. So yeah, it's a a shame that this game, like... you can't get it anywhere. I mean, you Very can download strange. Super Castlevania 4 right now if you want, you know, and like, I think that that's a much weaker title than this, to be 100% honest. So it, it's just kind of interesting that like, that was the one that you could download, you know, like, but I bet you, I bet you there's, uh, knowing Konami and knowing that, that they're like a very income-based company, there's some weird reason. Like, there, there's something 
tying it up. They, there's no reason why they wouldn't have just like slipped it out there uh, as a cash grab, considering how many times that they've remade Castlevania Symphony of the Night at this point, you right. know, and yeah. you just kind of put it on different consoles. There, there's there's something. There has to be some kind of licensing or something weird. Or or sales. I mean, I think I'm sh- yeah. I, I would have a feeling that Super Castlevania 4 probably did a lot better um, than than Bloodlines because there was, you know, an established, you know, Nintendo you know, for the franchise. Um and, mm-hmm. You know, and there hadn't been a Castlevania game on the Genesis, and also came out very late in the Genesis run, which also, you know, a lot of the games towards the end of the Genesis were really, you know, the ones that were being developed mostly by Western companies. You know, Sega of America, and you know, some of the yeah. other third parties. You know, a lot of the sports titles, and a lot of the 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 you know the Disney franchises and so forth. I mean, it really the the market and the audience for the Genesis had changed, you know, quite a bit at that point. So it may just have had low sales volume and that's why they haven't you know, re-released it. it. We have like three different releases of Rondo of Blood though, which I find probably, uh, maybe it had really good sales in Japan. I'm not even sure. There's an um, arcade version like, of that as well too. And then you have Dracula X. I mean, there's some similar, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're related, you know, they're, they're, yeah. there's kind of, you know, there's some changes and stuff. So that that's already kind of a, an established game on multiple platforms, I guess. Yeah. So jumping back into Bloodlines, uh, after you defeat the penultimate boss, who is basically um, Elizabeth Bathory, we continue onto the final stretch of the level. And this is where we encounter another adaptation of previous Castlevania tune, and it's the theme of Simon from Super Castlevania 4. Um, but before we give it a full listen, um, I wanted to, to pause here to return um, to what we want to talk about, the extra noise that's heard in the recording um, from having that, you know, not having that low pass filter. Um, so let's take a listen to the introduction with the mod and then once again without the mod. Yeah, so in this case, the second one, the unmodded version, sounds a lot cleaner. So what's going on with the noise there again? You know, I think it has to do with that organ sound. You know, it's a higher-pitched organ. And, you know, the organ has you know, a lot of similarities with, like, a square wave, you know, and a lot of the reedy kind of instruments. And so there's just a lot of harmonics that, that have a lot of presence to them. And I think that, you know, especially with it being higher-pitched there, that's where we're getting a lot of that extra hiss is that, that you know, that ceiling, there's no low ceiling for that, you know, for that low-pass filter. So everything's kind of coming out, you know, at full, you know, kind of full presence there. And that's where we get all those kind of distortions and stuff creating that noise. And with that clip, though, we definitely tried our best to highlight exactly what the issue is, um, you know, like the one sort of downside to the mod. But that's doing our best to take it out of context. If you're to compare like the middle sections of the song, again, I can't go back to preferring the unmodded version because the crispness. Uh, the richness in sound that we get just is it's so much better overall and it's totally worth it um you know of course i'm sure there's some middle ground you could find with post-production but just for the listeners we just want to do a direct hardware recording so um with a bit of hiss in there let's give it a listen uh and again i think it sounds better overall this way
So this track functions entirely as a callback of sorts, and in-game you're not likely to hear the entire thing unless you stand still, because it's only kind of a short walk to the final boss. Kind of reminds me of how in Sonic 2, Death Egg Zone, like, yeah, obviously they kind of cut Death Egg Zone originally, so they have this whole track and, like, you literally just kind of run left for, you know, I don't know, three seconds, and then you fight Metal Sonic, but if you sit there, you can hear a whole track that's almost two minutes long. Um, mm -hmm. So it's kind of a similar situation. Uh, it's a bit funny to me hearing a track from the Super Nintendo game being celebrated here. I guess, like, you know, there's the obvious reason that it's from the quote-unquote rival console. Um, but also, just because it's not as old as other themes they could have used there, so it's kind of like Konami already recognizes that the theme assignment is a classic, even though it's only it's only two and a half years from its creation, though. I mean, Konami already had like a habit of reusing themes. You can look back to YY World games on Famicom, or Parodius is, is a great example of just constant reuse themes. I think it just comes down to have them having an, a strong understanding of the importance of theming and branding a little bit, too. Music is a crucial part of identity of a video game, and we all know this as we celebrate the music of retro video games. But you get the sense that Konami understood this well back then, back in the earlier years when video game music wasn't taken as seriously. Yeah, it's definitely economically minded because they're so big on their franchises and just re mm -hmm. rebuilding on their successes. I mean, I mean, how many times did the Ninja Turtle game be reinvented? You know, the, the Ninja Turtle beat them up. <laughs> yeah. You know, so they they're really big on on kind of establishing these franchises and you know having that that token of that or that calling card for that franchise you know, musically is important too. And I think the Castlevania series has a pride in its music that goes a little bit deeper as well. Um, I'd even go so far as to argue that that's a pretty big part of the Castlevania experience. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, if you were new to the series and you just played through the whole series in order, like, there's no way you wouldn't notice that lots of themes are being celebrated over and over. And I don't think it's just lazy sort of fan service for the sake of it. Um, it sort of comes from a place, I think, of genuine appreciation and just, like, a desire to sort of celebrate their own legacy. This all makes sense when you consider how, like, deep they actually dig. Like, there's some deep cuts. The name entry tune that was exclusive to the FDS version of Castlevania, or Overture from Castlevania 3, those kinds of tracks wouldn't be getting covered if appealing to popularity was the main goal. <laughs> right, yeah, like, it's, it's not all just Vampire Killer and Bloody Tears. Uh, speaking of which... Let's move on to covers of Vampire Killer and Bloody Tears. <laughs> and uh, also beginning from Castlevania 3. Uh, these are unlockable themes that exist as a secret in Bloodlines.
So according to GameFAQs, if you set a specific music track and a specific sound effect in the sound test, um, then exit the sound test and start the game, it unlocks these songs in-game when you fully upgrade your whip or your spear. But GameFAQs only mentions Vampire Killer and Bloody Tears, and I didn't actually try it myself, so I don't know if, like, Beginning has another way of being unlocked, or if it's part of that unlock. Um, if anyone actually knows more specifics on that, that'd be great, please let us know. Though Bloodlines isn't the first game in the series to reuse themes from previous games, it caused five covers in total, which is, I think, a lot more than any previous Castlevania. We just talked about Konami having an appreciation for these themes, but it also shows how the series itself is maturing at this point. This is the time and place where you can finally have a game that covers five different songs from four previous Castlevanias. So here's another quote from Michiru Yomane from that same interview with Chris Greening. She says, quote, Some great musical works already existed from the previous Castlevania games, and I gained inspiration from tracks such as Vampire Killer, Beginning, and Bloody Tears, especially, which have become the standard tunes for the series now. There were many heritages like that the previous composers had left for me. I analyzed the compositions to find out the secret of their charm, and I composed so I didn't create something inferior to their previous works. I guess it should go without saying, but she was very successful in her goal of living up to that legacy that was Mm -hmm. basically established by all those NES Castlevania soundtracks. Even though she wasn't involved with Castlevania during its earliest, most formative years, there's a reason she's still basically the most famous uh, Castlevania composer today. So, jumping back into the game, we're at the final boss. Uh, We'll hear the battle theme, titled Vampire's Stomach, followed by the Dracula orb and all clear jingles. Yeah, and so the first track we heard there, Vampire's Stomach, of all the songs in the soundtrack, I feel like that's the one that's most like Symphony of the Night. I feel like that one could fit in that game easily as a boss theme. Yeah, absolutely. So one question I had, and maybe I should know this with the preparation that was put into this episode, but there are three quote-unquote orb tracks. So there's orb, which we heard much earlier, every time you beat a boss. There's Dracula orb, which was that high-pitched sort of dun-dun-dun-dun sound that we just heard. But there's also something else in the soundtrack called Energy Orb, which is just like Dracula Orb, but it's higher pitched and it does the sound effect once more. So, I don't know. You know, it just kind of bugs me. Like, I don't know where that's from. I was clicking through a long play of the game looking for, like, you know, watching every boss get defeated and I couldn't spot it anywhere. Um, Maybe I just missed it, but I think it might be unused. But, you know, who knows? (laughs) <laughs> you might have just found the most boring Castlevania mystery of all time. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think anyone cares. To close out the soundtrack, we have the death jingle, followed by the epilogue theme, Together Forever, and the ending credits, Requiem for the Nameless Victim. <laughs>
so is like Requiem for the Nameless Victim like a reference to the developers? Like they're the nameless, <laughs> I, they're the nameless that's victims. Like the, that's kind of like the the perfect passive aggressive title for you know the Konami sound team to be like, yeah, we never get any credit, <laughs> so we're just gonna title the track "The Nameless Victims" <laughs> that we are. <laughs> I <laughs> well. So that wraps up the soundtrack, but there's one last thing we wanted to cover, which is how music from Bloodlines has since been reused in later titles. So even though this game has never been re-released, its soundtrack provides a living legacy within the series, or what's left of the series for that matter. Uh, Anyways, let's take a brief look at all the times a track has been adapted to a later title. So a rearrangement of A Vision of Dark Secrets appears in Circle of the Moon on the Game Boy Advance. Reincarnated Soul appears in Castlevania The Adventure of Rebirth on Nintendo Wii. Sinking Old Sanctuary has an arrangement in Circle of the Moon, and also in Legacy of Darkness, of all places, on the N64. Let's take a quick listen to both. Blue Intention shows up again in Portrait of Ruin on the Nintendo DS, in Castlevania Judgment for the Nintendo Wii, and most recently in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate for the Nintendo Switch. That's it. Seven covers of four songs found in six different games. It's pretty cool hearing the Smash version. That came out just a couple months ago. Yeah. Good job, Bloodlines. You did it. You're still relevant. (laughs) Good luck playing it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Correction. This game will be available in its first re-release soon. So this is kind of crazy timing on this, but in between the time we recorded this episode and the time I've spent editing it, it's actually been announced that a Sega Genesis Mini will be coming out and Bloodlines will be packaged with it. So all of our previous talk about it being impossible to buy and it never being re-released uh, is kind of outdated by the time this episode's coming out. Uh, apparently the Japanese version of the Sega Genesis Mini will not only include Bloodlines, but it'll include all three regional variations, the Japanese U.S. and European versions of the game, so uh, yeah, look out for that. (laughs) 
So that wraps up the main portion of the episode. Uh, thanks again, Kevin, for helping us out with this episode. All of the hardware recordings, they're just uh, fantastic. I mean, you made this episode, really. Um, so thanks so much for helping us out. Hey, I'm, I'm happy to be on the show. This is always an honor for me. It's always very exciting. And I listen to every episode and, of course, you know, follow along with everything that you all are discussing, you know, online on the Twitterverse and in Discord channel. Um, so just very happy to be back. And uh, I learned a lot as well just getting ready for the episode. Mm, thank you. So, uh, Steve and Kevin, what else is going on? So one of the things that has happened kind of this year that and like very recently, that's kind of really exciting. Uh, if you recall in our VRC7 episode, we talked about how the preset patches for the VRC7 were kind of a mystery and kind of a best guess. Well, actually, someone has found the actual patches and we know the actual ways that they were, the sounds were designed. Yeah, so what we're actually going to do is, as much as we want to talk about it right now, um, we feel like it's a major enough update that we're actually going to do our first Retro Game Audio mini episode. I'm not even sure what we're going to call it yet, but like probably like a week from now or something, we're going to put out like a, a short episode just ex- explaining like what is going on right now with the VRC7 because it's uh, important to our understanding of the chip and there's some really cool stuff happening with it right now. Yeah, so stay tuned. I was going to say that news came out just as I... Um saw the uh, the pre-order for for the uh, collection of essays where I, I have a Lagrange point chapter coming out soon where I'm talking about VRC7 and I really wish that this oh. discovery had happened in time that I could at least put you know at least a footnote or something in there because I feel like it's so important mm-hmm. um, and I if, had I known it definitely would have uh, been included there but um, anyway just a quick shameless plug since yeah. I'm here um, yes. so it, yeah <laughs> Uh, so uh, Will Gibbons and Steve Reale, uh, I have a collection of essays on music and role-playing games, specifically uh, role-playing games uh, as video games, and uh, it's b- being published by Routledge, and uh, it should be coming out at the end of the summer, I believe in August, and so pre-orders are available. I can certainly link to it there, um, and so I have, I'm have. i very honored to be a part of this collection and, and have a chapter on, of all things, LaGrange Point and VRC7, and uh, it's uh, something I'm very excited about, and uh, I... Uh, if you want to check it out, uh, check out the volume. It'll be out soon, um, later this summer, or come chat with me, and I'll be happy to share some of the ideas that I dug up when I was uh, looking to do the research for it. Yeah, we'll plug a link to it in the description for the episode, too, on SoundCloud, if you want to find a link to that. Um, so, Kevin, I want to ask you a little bit more, too. So, in the introduction of the episode, you talked about your ongoing efforts to sort of recreate video game music using the original sources that it came from. Um part of this to my understanding maybe correct me if i'm wrong part of it relates to sort of the ongoing hunt for the source of the sunsoft base is that right well yeah i i would say that that's not the main motivation here Mm -hmm. because i mean i think that the sunsoft base is probably an even deeper rabbit hole than the ideal genesis uh sound so you know sound Mm -hmm. recording source um but you know in building the collection you know one of the things i i wanted was to have a sampler um, that could capture, you know, really low sample rates, you know, 4,000 kilohertz, uh, you know, and so forth. And so the, the Akai S612, you know, the Akai's sort of first professional sampler, um, has uh, the ability to sample between uh, 4 kilohertz and uh, 32 kilohertz. So below the 44.1 kilohertz that, you know, you would find with... Uh, you know, with Redbook audio and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when when you had that sort of revelation on the earlier episode about um, the Sunsoft bass, I guess it was uh, about SS, um, mm-hmm. uh, was the one that um, 
let's see, it was Stefan, right? Yeah, Stefan had, had interviewed him, mm-hmm. and, and he said that he believed it was an Akai S700 uh, that was used uh, to create the Sunsoft base. Now, I mean, this is a sampler, um, but the S612 and the S700 by Akai are, you know, essentially the same sampler. One of the differences with the S700 is that they integrated the quick disk system into the same unit. It's not two separate units. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are some other small features, I believe, too. But in terms of the sample rates um, and them both being 12-bit, you know, they're, they're strikingly very similar. Um, and so I, one of the things about getting, I recently was able to find a broken Akai S612 as well as a broken uh, Akai MD280, which is the quick disk, external quick disk uh, drive for it. And mm-hmm. after a lot of painstaking uh, solder pad rework and everything that I had to do, I finally got both of them running. Um, because this, you know, it's the type of work that you know, if you were doing it on like a like a Model Two Genesis, you'd just toss it and get another one. <laughs> you wouldn't go through all of that pain. You know, if, if the ca- capacitors had leaked or something and then pulled off, you know, the traces and the solar pads, you just wouldn't even bother. But when it's something like this, where there's not a ton of them out there that that come up for sale, and even when you get one that's working well, they they can be very expensive. That you just kind of have to force yourself to go through and and get everything working again. Um, so I got them working, and I'm very excited about that. I've already tested them out a little bit. So, you know, it's maybe something that comes along. There was an Akai Sound library um, that was released on those quick disks that can, that can be loaded on the Akai S612, as well as the S700 and then the X7000, the keyboard. Um, and so it's possible there's, you know, some of those uh, b- uh, bases, samples in that library um, could possibly be it. But of course, you can also sample you know, from, from anything, you, you know, right. you can record off of, you know, just plug in a, a, an actual electric bass and, and record from that. So who knows, you know, it might've been used, uh, to create, uh, the bass sample, but whether there's an actual source that we can find on a disc somewhere from its sound library, that remains to be determined. But what we can learn from it is by using the lower sample rates and then playing them back at, at lower and higher frequencies, you can really see, you know, dynamically with that hardware, what it was like to have those chromatic samples and then having them played back without looping them and how they get, of course, shorter at the higher frequencies um, and duration just because you're playing through the sample that much faster. I think to me, like if the original source of the Sunsoft bass can ever be found because it was just like some studio recording that they did themselves, I would at least be satisfied to know that like a lot of original bass samples that were available at the time were sifted through and kind of poked through and saying like, nah, we don't really think any of these were the source of the Sunsoft bass sample. Um, like if we right. reach, if yeah, we reach that a- point, like yeah. once they're sifted through, like that would sort of, to me, almost like be a relief in a way to know like that the research was finally done at that level. It puts a little bit of resolution on the search. Yes, exactly. That's a better way of putting it. Absolutely. Uh, so, Steve, I wanted to ask you, you just played a show in Philly and tweeted a couple tweets about it that looked really cool. Um, you played with another musician who did this weird thing with like, a bunch of Game Boys linked up? What, 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 so, what was yeah. the deal with that? So, yeah, I, I just played a show recently at the Rotunda here in Philly. Uh, and it was just kind of like I got to do, I got to open for this other act, um, which was kind of nice because like, I think it was really uh andrew is the guy who runs it and i think that he really it's a great pairing because what what he was doing and what i do is kind of the neoclassical style and -hmm. i think that he wanted to do what he was doing which is kind of really interesting so he's got eight game boys 
eight Game Boys attached and 24 part polyphony across eight Game Boys, and he's programmed them to play classical music. Um, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, and Ooh. it's kind of really interesting because it, it could be one of those things where it's kind of like, you know, oh, okay, that that's really nice. There's eight Game Boys, but he also used that and Arduino to kind of uh, control stand lights. And I thought that was even funnier because, like, as a musician, like, there's straight up like stand lights that you'd buy and attach to a Manhasset stand. And if you were playing mm-hmm. in like a pit, that's the stand light you would have. So he had the, the, the stand lights kind of light up as, as tones are played. So and then they kind of turn the lights off, and it creates like this like interesting thing. And it's also kind of like an act. It's called the the Dorothy Matrix Eight uh, Bit Orchestra. Um, and this is like, you know, kind of, uh, it's really interesting because like the, they play things like Lieutenant Kiji and like various different, uh, one of, uh, his stated goals is to make sure that he highlights female composers. So there's a lot of female composers highlighted as well. Oh, awesome. So it was, it, it was kind of really cool. And like it, the sound is really great. There are some clips on my, uh, Twitter account, uh, especially the Beethoven, uh, that was played Beethoven's fifth. Uh, where just like when the brass kind of kicks in and everything, you can hear the full realization of 24 channels kind of actually sounding good together. Um, and, you know, it, I can imagine that, you know, it's one of those things where it's like I, I conceptualize as being, oh, you know, I'll just get the score out and kind of, you know, I'll just like program channels here and there. But it becomes very apparent that once you start doing that, that it's, it's not easy. Like, it's not like mm-hmm. you would just, pr- and especially if you want to make it kind of like a show, um, it would be very difficult to, uh, you know, just use like one Game Boy as the cello. Like you kind of want the Game Boy to bounce around, so the co- the you know mm-hmm. the, the stand lights like light up in certain ways and stuff. So I think that's the really creative aspect of it. Because otherwise, I mean, like you could just take the score and program it across eight Game Boys. But to create a show out of it, I think is really the mastery that uh, Andrew was showing yeah, through this. Yeah, right. what I could what I could see, even <laughs> though I couldn't be at the show, just watching the clips you posted to Twitter, I was like, oh, this looks like a really cool audiovisual experience. Yeah, um, that, that's what it is. Yeah. And it's kind of like a stage show too that's built into it with like an act and everything it's, it's really cool i mean that, that's definitely someone that i think people should put on their radar in terms of doing really interesting things um i know there was someone mentioned there was like a nest band or there was some other band that did something similar to this but it wasn't to this extent uh and it wasn't like an educational kind of show experience there were like kids there and stuff like that too who came out to see oh this. wow so it, it was cool. pretty cool yeah that's hmm. awesome So it's time for Name That Game. In our last episode, we played an excerpt from this track. And that was first guessed correctly by at Marklin Cadet on Twitter as Bean Equinox by Tim Fallon for the Super Nintendo. And taking a look on our SoundCloud, the first uh, mention here, the first person who guessed it correctly was Dashing Electron. So good job. Yeah, good job, everyone. Uh, We have another track picked out. See if you can name that game. And so, Patrick, you know, we're getting towards the end of the episode. That means it's time for the song of the week. Do we have anything picked out? Yeah, so earlier in the episode, we were listening to excerpts of tracks that were covered in later Castlevania titles. Uh, So let's just go back and listen to the full version of Iron Blue Intention from Portrait of Ruin. Don't forget to stay tuned for the upcoming mini-episode on the VRC7, and you have been listening to Retro Game Audio.